welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes A.R. Shaw to discuss his book, Trap History, Atlanta Culture and the Global Impact of Trap Music. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by A.R. Shaw, the author of Trap History, Atlanta Culture, and the Global Impact. A.R., welcome. Hi. Glad to be here. Oh, and I, I really dug the book, and it, this is obviously very timely, obviously, with the tragic death this week um, and the Young Thug trial, but it's an excellent history of what is now a 20-year-old subgenre of hip-hop, trap music, um, and very excited to have you on the show. And on the cover of the book, actually, in the frontispiece of the book, you have this photograph uh, that's of two black hands, a black man's hands with a mic in one hand, gold watch on that hand, a handcuff on the other hand attached to the watch, and what looks like a bag of, of crack rock, some kind of illicit substance on the other hand. Tell us about this this iconography. Yeah, so there was, um, initially I came up with the idea to do a book on trap music around 2014. Um, it I, had, I took a trip to London for the 2012 Olympics and went in London, uh, someone was, I met with one of the locals and they told me that they were having a, 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 a like this night called Trap Night. And it just kind of blew my mind away because me being an Atlanta native, uh, trap was just something that was, you thought that was just indicative of Atlanta and something, you know, Southern, Southern America. Uh, but to see that the influence had reached to London was, uh, you know, it kind of just opened my eyes and I said, okay, this is bigger than just an Atlanta thing. So I began to do my research, um, just, you know, from the music standpoint and also just the uh, environment of trap and decided to come up with a visual that kind of represented both sides of the story. And it's like this duality of uh, one hand, you know, making it with the wealth and uh, the mic and using that mic to kind of uh, elevate your status, your, your status in society, but also being uh, trapped within this uh, the same, I guess, uh, environment of, of whether it's, you know, drugs, poverty, or finding ways to get out of that. And the handcuff kind of symbolizes that, you know, they're trapped in both ways. And it's like, you know, once the artists, <laughs> you know, they, once they enter music, uh, they still almost become beholden to this environment and beholden to this, uh, way of life and mentality. So just wanted to kind of have a, a, a brief illustration of 
kind of what this overall uh, message of, of what it means to be trapped, not just uh, from a from a musical standpoint, but from a societal standpoint. Yeah, and, and that, I mean, it seems obvious, like trap, the word trap, you know, that's what the word trap means, but it's taken on so many other meanings first as, as trap house, uh, you know, where the drugs are chopped up and distributed from, and, and now trap music. So I had literally thought, stopped thinking about it as a trap. And you really bring back that literal meaning. And as we've seen this week, you know, the tragic death of takeoff of the Migos um, and the young, tru- young thug uh, persecution that's going on uh, in Atlanta right now. Yeah, it really brings it back. You've got a great sentence at the beginning where you say, trap music res- reveals itself as the sound of young blacks feeling trapped by a lack of options and somehow viewing drugs and crime as the only way out. And that's the thing, this music from the time of T.I.'s ra- uh, trap music album, it's been about the drug game. And like you say, it's just become inseparable. Um, and yeah, it, it, but let, let's get into the specifics. You've got another quote I want to get you to elaborate on. It says, to walk in Atlanta often meant you were walking on the power of possibility. Elaborate on that. Yeah, I think um, – so I, I can I – can, I can, I'll answer the, the second question first, and then I'll come back to the first question, the first quote. Uh, the, with the second quote, uh, Atlanta – walking in Atlanta, meaning you were walking the power of possibility – um, traveling as a journalist, I got an opportunity for the past 15 years to travel across America. I've been in pretty much every major city in America and, you know, just seeing how, uh, just the limitations that are placed on certain black communities, well, black communities in certain cities, you, you see that, uh, you know, Atlanta, there's a, there's a, a different opportunity. Uh, it's the birthplace of Martin Luther King, civil rights movement. Uh, we've had uh, multiple black mayors, starting with Maynard Jackson in the 1970s. And so coming up under that, uh, this this historical precedent, it, it kind of gives you uh, an, an, an inspiration that you probably wouldn't get from an, another city, being in another city where you uh, don't have those uh, those leaders or individuals who you can look up to. And I think that Atlanta... Uh, is this a special place when it comes to Black America, uh, where you could you could go to the King Center, you could visit the King Center. You know, w- you know, one thing about you know when we were coming up, our we were always every year we would have a school trip to the King Center, and just to walk on those grounds to say, okay, wow, this is this is a man who impacted the world, and he comes from Atlanta. That gives you an extra. Uh, motivation within itself that probably doesn't occur in most major cities. Uh, and so it's just a, you know, when you, when you walk in, there's a confidence that, that you have initially that you can pretty much take, if given the opportunity, you can succeed in, 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 in multiple ways. On the other hand, going back to that initial quote, uh, the first quote, uh, you know, regarding, uh, you know, trap some, you know, some youth seeing, uh, drug and crime is the only way out. Uh, Atlanta has for years been uh, stricken with the highest income inequality rate where you have uh, a large gap between the wealth and the poor. And this has been consistent for decades. And uh, so that's, you know, although there there's a, 
great opportunities for you. You know, I mean, if you if you're a young black youth coming up in that city, because you know you can go you can go to Morehouse, or you can go to a Spelman or a Clark Atlanta, and, and and see that okay, there's a way out. But at the same time, it's like from a financial standpoint, uh, the resources a lot of times didn't trickle down to certain communities. And so if you don't have that, uh, that initial education, you, you, you know, what opportunities do you have? And so I think a lot of times you see young, you see youth not necessarily doing it just to do it. They do it because it's, it's really the only option a lot of times to, when it comes to, uh, well, we're not saying it alone, but it's seen as almost the only option uh, to find a, a, a pathway to uh, earning finances uh, for for their family, so it's just a it's just a you know like I say it's, it's you know and, I, and with the book I, I I talk about how redlining and, and uh, you know uh, real estate the federal government basically for years for decades <laughs> not allowing black homeowners uh, black potential black homeowners to buy in certain neighborhoods and and so you saw that you know f- for decades the black community was cut off f- from wealth and these are the repercussions of that and so I just wanted to make sure that I, I told both sides of well not just both sides but all sides of the story when it comes to what trap music is and and the environments that it portrays Let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is going way back. This is Hitman Sammy Sam, the Hitman. Hitman Sammy Sam, the Hitman. And a lot of people are probably going, what is this old stuff? And what does this have to do with trap? But this is a good segue. Where did trap music come from? Tell us about the influences and and the longer history than we think of trap having. Yeah, so basically, when you think about just America, I think uh, in the 80s, uh, crack cocaine decimated many American cities from Los Angeles to New York to Atlanta, Miami, Chicago, Detroit, you can think about any major city in America, crack cocaine uh, had, a, had a stronghold on them. And uh, in, <clears throat> Atlanta was no different. And uh, you saw early on in the 80s, a lot of the housing projects pretty much served as, as trap or, or places where uh, drugs were sold and bought. And so, uh, and, if, and also from a geographical standpoint, uh, we have to go back in history. A lot of it's a, it's a, it's a historical book as well. So uh, Atlanta, of course, was known as Terminus. And there are multiple, multiple railroads, uh, multiple railroads um, in the city. And so what happens is you have like uh, a lot of uh, places where uh, there's dead ends. It's just a, the, 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 geogra- the way that Atlanta is, geographically was geographically created is just insane if you look at atlanta on a grid uh you will see that it kind of like the streets are like tangled it's not really anything like very 
conducive. Like, you know, you go to Washington, D.C. and you see that all the streets kind of line up. And it's like uh, you could tell that there was a meaning behind the design of Washington, D.C. But you go to Atlanta and it's like you look at the map and it's like, why are these streets so tangled and they just go nowhere? Uh, and so those places that were, you know, that the dead ends and the cul-de-sacs, those places became the trap because it was one way in and one way out um, in, in many in many cases. Uh, and so you get into this and you go back into the 80s. And so with the 1980s, of course, uh, the rise of hip hop, uh, initially bass music was the was the uh, first subgenre of, of hip hop music that was prominent in Atlanta. And so you had guys like Hitman, Sammy Sam, Kilo Ali, Raheem the Dream. Those were like some of the first Atlanta rap, rap artists. Uh, Hitman, Sammy Sam, he was probably more so, he, you know, did more street music. Uh, and so I, I would say he was probably like the first artist that did like, it wasn't called trap music back then, but it was just street music or uh, music that uh, kind of described streets in Atlanta, the street scene in Atlanta. Um, but the the slang term trap basically grew out of that in the 1980s where it was like uh, places where you know there was only one way in and there was one way out. And so just from a slang term, those places became known as the trap. Uh, and just so, you know, this is a term in Atlanta that was around since the late eighties during the nineties. Uh, and fast forward to TI, TI in 2000, but TI, he created, well, he made an album called trap music and just basically took the slang term trap and put music behind it. And the, the interesting thing, like like going back, I wasn't familiar with Hitman Sammy Sam for this, but listen to him, and he's got the he's got that Run DMC cadence, but he's talking about the same stuff as like Schooly D or NWA so, or Too Short. He's he's already on the gangster tip, but musically he's he's a little bit, and he's bass heavy. You know, you can definitely hear that Miami influence, but then his rapping style is very Run DMC kind of mid '80s pre Rakim style drumming. So it's pretty fascinating. But then Ti's album, you know, trap music. He called his album his first hit album. It wasn't his first album, but it was the first album that hit for him. He called it trap music. And he'll, you know, he and Gucci Mane have, have gone back and forth about, you know, who invented trap. And T.I. coined the term. And it's one of these instances. It's like house music in <laughs> Chicago. It was called house music many years, like five, six years before the first house record was made, because it was based on what um, they were playing at a club called The Warehouse. And uh, Frankie Knuckles was playing a certain style of music and, and, and the Chicago production style we now know as house evolved out of that. And I'd see trap in kind of the same way where T.I. kind of coined the genre or the, the ethos of the genre. But musically, what he was doing kind of had more in common with what was going on in Houston or Memphis um, immediately prior to that. Talk about that kind of the Southern influences on T.I. and and what is it? Why why do we start this history with Ti and not Outcast or the Goody Mob? Well, in the book, I have a chapter dedicated to Outcast, <laughs> Goody Mob. Uh, fair yeah, enough, that, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah, and it, it does start there. So, um, in the book, I actually go into how when Trap was actually first recorded on an on an album and it was uh so it's, it's two things so andre 3000 
said it in Players Ball. He he had a lyric that said, um, "I set up trap, shut up that," and that was like 1993. So that's like the first time trap was ever heard on like a major album. Next was uh, Cujo Goody from the Goody Mob. He uh, he he mentioned the word trap um, on a song Thought Process, where he said, you know, when when we were out serving in a trap, this was 94, 1994. And then Big Boy said it again on the Equimini album. This is probably when it, on the Equimini album is probably like the first time most people heard uh, Spodio Di Dopalicious on, on that song. It was like a spoken, spoken word piece. Big Boy basically describes uh, an individual who uh, who can't get a job at UPS because of uh, he failed, some person failed a drug test. And it basically at the end of the spoken word piece, Big Boy says, now you find yourself in a trap, just that trapped. Uh, and so that was that was 98. And so that was probably like the first time most people, because that was basically one of the most critics called equipment out one of the best albums in hip hop history. And I think either Pitchfork or Rolling Stone named it the best hip hop album of all time. I can't remember which publication, but. One of those publications they do. Yeah, but yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that same thing. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't, you know, Outkast and Goody Mob had this more positive vibe, and and that I don't associate. You know, it, 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 something changed. There was a sea change around yeah. the turn of the millennium. Explain what what changed. Well, I I don't think it was a change. I just think that was more so, uh, like a kind of a different story right i think i think the thing about 90s hip-hop is is that it, there were different there was a variety of stories telling and you know the stories out of miami didn't sound like the stories from houston the stories from houston didn't sound like the stories from the bay area and la and compton had a different story and new york was just <clears throat> a total you know different monster when it came to hip-hop and the variety of music where you had a tribe called quest or uh, a, a Coogee rap, like it was just so, it was just so distinctive in hip hop in, in the nineties, right? Uh, and and but the thing about uh, southern music, most people didn't really know about southern music because they didn't get national distribution. So the sound that you hear from Ti, like he basically got a lot of his sound from UGK, the Underground Kings, Eight Ball, MJG, uh, from Memphis, uh, and so those were. In the early, you know, those in the night, they they didn't really get much distribution as far as you know national airplay, um, and so a lot of people didn't really know from a national standpoint. They didn't know about those underground artists. Uh, Memphis was they had a, a slew of artists that were was underground. Along with Three Six, they had artists such as um, uh, Skinny Pimp, uh, Gangsta Black. Uh, uh, yeah, they had a thriving mixtape scene. In the- yeah, play or fly, like it was. But these guys, they uh, they didn't really break out of on a national. Only the only was three, three six was like one of the only that kind of broke broke out nationally. Uh, but from from a from a southern standpoint, those were very popular albums and songs and mixtapes. And so uh, I think Ti gravitated towards the UGK A Ball and MJG sound. Uh, it's coming out of Texas. Which was coming, yeah, it was coming out of Texas and, and, and Memphis. Um, and so I don't think it was a change. I just think that T.I. kind of gravitated towards them more so than, than Outkast. Uh, and 
you you heard that uh, and also with with Gucci Mane and and Jeezy they kind of had that same they were kind of in that same uh I guess lane when it came to music and so I don't know if it was just a, I don't know if there was like a uh a shift but I just think it was just a, a different form of music because I think it, like in the south uh just growing up I remember we you know we would listen to 8ball and MJG we li- we would listen to UGK we would listen to Outkast like you know, we, we listen to pretty much all the Southern music, but from a national standpoint, I think a lot of people just didn't really uh, catch on to those other artists. Let's go ahead and hear, this is the first trap record I ever heard, uh, T.I.'s Rubber Band Man. That was T.I. doing Rubber Band Man, which is one of a wave of singles coming out of the South. You, you, you uh, had T.I. hitting, uh, Lil John was hitting with his crunk style around the same time. Houston scene was blowing up, uh, Mike Jones and Paul Wall, and, and 3-6 Mafia obviously was making a national breakout. Plus, the New Orleans scene was just blowing up all then. So T.I. seemed like just part of this dirty South uh, wave that was happening. And for a lot of us that were casuals, I wasn't distinguishing, you know, who's from where and what are the different characteristics of the scene. But looking back, we have now what we call a trinity of, of trap artists. Hip-hop's big on trinities all the way back to Cool Herc and Africa Bambata and, and Grandmaster Flash at the beginning. Who's the trinity of trap? Yeah, so the trinity, uh, T.I., of course, uh, Gucci Mane and Jeezy who's known as young Jeezy at that point. Uh, but T.I. was first. He was the, like, because the, he, 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 he signed with uh, LaFace uh, in 98. And he came in at almost like the end of the LaFace era, the LaFace run, which was... And I need to mention LaFace is the record company that L.A. Reid and uh, Baby yeah. Face founded. That was, it was the first major label in Atlanta. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but artists such as TLC, Usher, Tony Braxton. So <laughs> these are like great big artists right so ti he he uh he he signs in in 98 uh science uh, science to the face records uh but for whatever reason he he his because his sound was just so different i don't think la and i not i have a quote in the book uh from la Reed where you know he just didn't understand the music at the time he didn't understand how to uh you know to sell it uh, where he could sell a Usher and know he could get four million, sell really ten million with Usher, or Outkast could sell ten million. Tony Braxton, Tony Braxton could sell two or three million, or even more. Uh, TLC could would sell millions, but you know, Ti, he, you know, because the, because the sound was so distinctive and it really wasn't a national sound at that point. His first album, I'm Serious, flopped, <laughs> so he was dropped by the Face Records. Uh, uh, after his after his first album, but so Ti was the first one to kind of introduce uh, trap music, and Dope Boys and the Trap was kind of indicative of that uh, that trap sound. Um, and the song that is that's a song on I'm Serious. Following Ti, you had Gucci Mane that came out of East Atlanta. 
uh, Gucci Mane, he uh, pretty much told stories of Zone Six and come and you know him being raised near Boulder Crest Road, uh, and you know he he pretty much gave it gave his his view of of the east side of Atlanta, uh, whereas Ti was from the west side of Atlanta. And uh, Jeezy came in. He came in uh, around that same time, uh, more so through the mixtape uh, scene. Uh, of course, he had the streets. I mixtapes for listeners that don't understand. I mean, I know what a mixtape is from back in the eighties when you would record a tape at, at home, you know, and make up your own mix. What's it mean in the commercial context for hip hop around the turn of the millennium? Yeah. So, in uh, so yeah. So initially, mixtapes were just. Uh, songs that DJs would, would uh, uh, slew, different songs that DJs would put together uh, for individuals who want to have a party or anything, they would sell those mixtapes. And it started in New York. It was a, it was a New York thing. Uh, but it also different DJs in different cities would, would put together mixtapes, whether it was Chicago, of course, like you said, with House, you know, every, you know, they would put together these mixtures of songs. When it came to hip hop, uh, 50 Cent was one of the first artists to actually capitalize on the mixtape, the mixtape uh, scene. Basically, he would, uh, it wasn't necessarily uh, what we call a traditional album. It wasn't a traditionally distributed. It was basically a collection of songs that maybe freestyles uh, or kind of like uh, songs that you would hear. Uh, they weren't really polished, <laughs> but they were just kind of experiments of songs and Basically, the the artist would take them right to the consumer. It wasn't really a big distribution channel. Uh, they would usually sell them, uh, sell the mixtapes on corners or different neighborhoods, communities, you know, small record stores. And so that was pretty much how the mixtape scene was introduced in hip hop. Like I said, 50 Cent was one of the first major artists to capitalize off of that. But he was from New York. When it came to the South, uh, See, yeah, he had a he had a run of mixtapes following his being uh, released from I'm Serious. I mean, being released from Face Records, he came out with the In the Streets uh, mixtape series that kind of got him back in in rhythm. But Jeezy was the was the young Jeezy was probably one of the first artists in the South to really capitalize major on the mixtape game. Um, first with the Streets is watching mixtape, and then the Trap a Dime mixtape was which was an entirely different thing. It had almost like a feel of an album. It was so huge. Um, and so it was basically uh, the artist going straight to consumer, creating a creating a, a, a mix of songs. And instead of having a, a, a distribution channel, which was uh, a major record label or, or, you know, anything like that, it was like the artist would make a make several songs, print up, basically print it up from an, from an independent standpoint and take it straight to the consumer. Yeah, and at this point, it got so big, and the record companies were kind of winking at it because it was breaking big artists. I mean, somebody like DJ Screw in Houston was making a nice living just selling mixtapes out of his house. Uh, similarly, in Memphis, all over the place. And by the early 2000s, it had become kind of quasi-legal. And, and it, you know, people like Lil Wayne are making these mixtapes where they're just copping beats right off records. You didn't have to clear any samples or nothing. And, and, you know, do freestyle over it. So it, it, very organic form. But then the record companies would have the RIAA call the cops and do these big raids. So it it's just a classic case of the, the, the love-hate relationship between the artists and the community and the, and the companies that are capitalizing on it. But I want to I um, 
keep moving and talk about what changed in the 2010s. Because the 2010s, I mean, I was, you know, I was here in TI and, and here in Young Jeezy, and it still seemed like hip hop to me. It didn't seem like a distinct genre the way in the 2010s we think of, you know, future Young Thug Migos. It's just audibly a different sound. Like old heads, you know, people I was listening to hip hop with in the 90s hated this stuff, called it mumble rap, and <laughs> it's totally different. Let's take a break here from our sponsors when we come back. Tell us what changed in the 2010. And we're back. So what was it that made Future Amigos so different, so just audibly different from what came before? Yeah, the interesting thing about Atlanta when it comes in terms of hip hop is that the sound and the reason and I think the reason why Atlanta has had such a stronghold on the hip hop scene is because every three to four years the city kind of reinvents itself, right? Where it was like most cities uh, would, they would have a run and you, maybe like a two or three year run and then you wouldn't hear from them anymore. And uh, Atlanta was different because it was, it was like continuously for, you know, from the dated outcast <laughs> released Southern Playalistic till this day, like Atlanta has pretty much remained at the forefront of the hip hop music scene. And you talk about 2000, the 2010s, that was almost like the handing, like the shifting of guards, right? Where, of course, you had the T.I., Gucci, and Jeezy era. And now there's a shift, right? There's a shift in sound, there's a shift in style. Where you have, you have Migos, you have Future, Young Thug. They're pretty much like the catalyst of this new sound. And... Migos, they don't sound like anyone else because they they come with this this triplet rhyme scheme where uh, and it's just to break down a triplet rhyme scheme is it's basically when you're rock, rhyming uh, two words in in a in a within a beat where usually it's only one word being rhymed. So they so it's almost like it seems like they're moving <clears throat> moving faster or, or saying words faster than they actually are. Or it seems like, and it's like almost like they they're coinciding with the snare drum beat that's really prominent in trap music. So it's almost like the voice becomes another instrument. Uh, so with uh, you know the Migos, with Future, Future, he he has another sound as well. He uh, <laughs> he finds a way to use auto tune and, and just takes it to another level. And his voice is very distinctive as well. So uh, Future was able to you know. Uh, capitalize off of, off of his distinctive sound. And Young Thug is just a totally different, uh, you know, he's just like, no one sounds like Young Thug. Like he just has his own unique sound, high pitched voice. And, you know, that was just a change. And it was like, wow, these it's a, it's a new era of not just trap music, but Atlanta music. And they're pretty much taking a mantle. And also we had to give, give a, a shout out to the producers as well. Uh, you know, you have producers such as Metro Metro Boom and uh, 808 Mafia. They they were giving this trap music sound a new a new uh, sound, whereas before you had Zaytoven and Shawty Red who worked prominently prominently with Gucci Mane and uh, and uh, Jeezy, and also Toomp, DJ Toomp, who worked with uh, Ti. They were like the first producers in trap, um, and so yeah, it was it was just an interesting thing that 
Atlanta was able to kind of reinvent itself in terms of trap music. Yeah, and it's fascinating, you know, doing this project and looking at kind of the whole history of American music, Atlanta has been this underperforming city. Like Atlanta could have been, could have, would have, should have been the home of country music. And the first big hit country record by Fiddle and John Carson was recorded there. But Nashville gets the, the crown. You know, Atlanta should have, could have, would have been the home of R&B. I mean, you had, you know, uh, Otis Redding and James Brown and even Ray Charles from Florida, none of them come to Atlanta to make their name. Ray Charles goes off to Seattle and L.A., and Little Richard goes to New Orleans. Otis Redding goes to Memphis. James Brown goes all the way to Cincinnati. And suddenly then, in the 90s, Atlanta, you know, once LaFace Records comes to town, and then you have the, you know, sort of commercial R&B success and some pop hip-hop, like crisscross and stuff. And then you have outcasts and organized noise and it becomes this hip hop monolith. Like you say, it just has not taken its foot off the throat of hip hop in the last 20 years. But now we're seeing this weird situation where the legal leadership of Atlanta is persecuting the top rap star and his record label. I'm talking about Young Thug being indicted by the black DA. Uh, I want to say Fulton County, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, is that the right county? Yeah, it's Fulton County. And okay, cool. Yeah, in the district attorney. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, and, and so as an outsider looking at this and somebody who knows American history, I mean, my assumption is just, oh, man, you know, the cops are cracking down on the community again. But then you look and and and, and there's two aspects of it that freak me out. And one is that they're using lyrics of rap songs as evidence. Now, they don't go to Stephen King and use his books, which have all kinds of sick stuff in it, as evidence in a trial. You know, you don't see them going up and prosecuting, you know, Wes Craven, the director of Nightmare on Elm Street, for all the sick stuff in his movies. What's the deal with trying to prosecute rappers for the lyrics of their songs? All right, so, yeah, so the district attorney is... Uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. She was a re- she was recently elected um, uh, to serve as the district attorney, following Paul Howard, who served uh, as just district attorney of Fulton County for nearly 20 years. I think uh, it was decades, <laughs> and so she upset. Uh, she she was able to upset him uh, a few years back, and she became the district attorney. Um, and so there's two things with this uh, this YSL case. Uh, and so on on the one hand, I think, and and, and I'm a journalist first, right? So <clears throat> I have to always look at both sides of the story. <clears throat> so on on one hand, I think Fannie Willis is looking at it like, okay, you know, there is a there is a pervasive element in hip hop where uh, it's you know crime is is almost becoming uh, a point where it's becoming desensitized within within the communities where you even have artists who are actually rapping about real crimes. And that was something that wasn't really the case early on in the 90s. It was very obscure. You know, it was, you know, beforehand, it wasn't really specific cases, but you actually have artists now who are actually naming individuals who were killed in, in, in rhymes. And so... From that standpoint, I, you know, me being a journalist, I, I really think that's that's irresponsible for any artist to pretty yeah, much in, 
indict themselves <laughs> on record, right? Yeah. Um, but in particular with this YSL case, uh, I find that interesting because I, you know, I got it, you know, I've, I've read the indictment uh, multiple times. I think it's, uh, it's like 56 pages. Um, and so just reading the indictments uh, and the lyrics that they chose to, to, to pull from Young Thug, it's uh, particularly Young Thug, because Ghana, actually, I'm not sure why Ghana is still in jail. I don't, <laughs> it just seems like Ghana is really just guilty by association. I don't, I don't, they don't really have anything connecting a, a specific crime to Ghana. Uh, and that's the, where Rico comes in. I want to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, the, point. yeah, with the Rico case, of course, you know, with the Rico, and that's what they charged them with. You can, it's almost like guilty by uh, affiliation of, or association. Uh, if they can tie you to a, to a, crime organization. Um, and so with the lyrics, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to, because, you know, just reading the lyrics, they, they, those particular lyrics seems a bit obscure and doesn't really point to a particular crime from, from what I've seen and, and just reading the, the different crimes. Now, individuals who they are connecting with YSL have committed crimes. And so, there, you know, there was one guy who uh, allegedly shot a police officer uh, I think a few few months back, uh, who was arrested, and there were several uh, murders that took place in the city of Atlanta that they, that the uh, DA they are attempting to connect to to individuals who are in YSL or affiliated in some form of fashion. Uh, now, with with particularly with Young Thug, like with Young Thug, I don't you know with the lyrics that they pull, I don't necessarily see anything connecting with him. Uh, you know, they're saying that there were threats that were made lyrically uh, but it's to me it's still like kind of hard to like really pinpoint that um i think the only issue i think the major issue that's gonna pretty much derail young thug is he has state charges with guns i think they found several weapons and um drugs in his in his home during a raid so uh he may have issues with that situation um now with lyrics you know i've 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 uh <laughs> done several interviews several several articles since this case and you're right, like this is hip hop is the only genre of music where lyrics are being used as evidence. Um, there was a woman who wrote a book about how to kill her husband. I need to get the name of that. Hopefully we can go back. I've seen that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Steph, maybe you can Google that while we're talking about it. Yeah. So there was a woman. She uh, wrote a book called basically how to kill your husband. And, and it's seen as it's seen as art. And then later on, her husband died. Right. And so, but for whatever reason, and, uh, they were not going to use that book as evidence, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason. So it's just interesting that, uh, you know, rap lyrics are like the only entertainment, it's the only entertainment medium that's used in court cases. Um, even with Alec Baldwin, per se, like, uh, of course, you know, he's, he was, uh, you know, he was in an unfortunate situation where someone died on set um, uh, during, during the, the shooting of a film. Uh, a person died. I guess there was some type of malfunction. Of, yeah, the cinematographer involved in yeah. that handed a loaded gun. And yeah. So, but yeah, but there was never any, you know, no one. No, no district attorney said, oh, we're going to use Alec Baldwin's movie as, as an evidence to show that he has, uh, uh, you know, a history of, of, of violence that he, you know, would prompt him to do to, to commit this crime. 
Um, so yeah, it's just a, it's just an interesting thing. You definitely race is involved, um, uh, because you, like I say, it doesn't really happen in other genres like, or any, any other medium forms of entertainment. Um, and so there are several, uh, like there are several bills, of course, in New York, they passed a bill where, uh, lyrics can't be used in, in court if there isn't like a direct, uh, association with, a, with a particular crime. So, they would the pro, the prosecution would have to actually prove that the that the lyrics is a direct correlation to a specific crime. And so there's several bills uh, nationwide that uh, they're looking to uh, pass when it comes to rap lyrics. Yeah, I think California has one too. And unfortunately, with Georgia being Georgia, it's not quite as bad as Texas. But y'all are going to need national legislation to get help with that. And the book uh, it was How to Mur- Murder Your Husband, Nancy Crampton. Yep. Let me introduce our third song in you. And this is Gucci Mane, Pills. Bitch, I might be. Bitch, I might be. Bitch, I might be. Bitch, I might be. Girl, he geeked up. Girl, he geeked up. Girl, he geeked up. Girl, he geeked up. Bitch, I might be. Bitch, I might be. Bitch, I might be. Bitch, I might be. Yeah. I'm telling me she never suck a dick. Never took a pill or never ate a bitch. You alive, but I ain't gonna get upset right now. But I wish I had a lot to take a piss right now. You say you married a bitch, you might be, but I That was Pills by Gucci Mane. And um back to back to the thing, this Rico aspect of it. I mean, and you know, I know that hip hop isn't innocent. Like there's a whole Hulu series on the backstories of various drug dealers and thugs that have funded or managed hip hop groups. Is there reason to believe that young thugs label is especially connected or, I mean, I mean, Rico is a heavy, heavy duty instrument. This is what they used to take down the five mafia families in New York in the eighties. And I mean, they've never had a Rico prosecution against the Ku Klux Klan, for example. So it seems pretty arbitrary. Is there something about Young Thug that, I mean, is he especially violent or especially connected? or Why, why him? Why now? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting, you said that, uh, yeah, yeah, the, K, the, the KKK, they've never been uh, hit with the, with the Rico. But there was this, uh, uh, it was a group, it was a crew in Georgia called the Dixie Mafia. And they were like, uh they they were like this white uh, mafia organization in rural Georgia. They got they were uh, hit with uh, RICO charges. This is like in the 80s. <laughs> so you definitely look up the Dixie Mafia, uh, and they committed a lot of crimes. And they they were probably one of the first uh, one of the first organizations in Georgia to get hit with the with RICO charges. Um, but with with uh, Young Thug. Uh, the it's you know it's very interesting when it comes to you know it's just <clears throat> when you when you're raised in certain communities is you know you almost can't really uh a lot of times you don't really choose your friends you just, you basically become friends with individuals who are go to you know go to school with you or if they play sports with you those are people those are usually the people who become your friends and they you know from childhood, those are usually your friends throughout life. Uh, Young Thug was raised on uh, in in this area called, well, on the street called Cleveland Avenue, which was 
uh, very, was crime, lot, lot of crime during that, during his youth um, in that area. And so I'm sure, you know, he had friends who were in, who had pretty much gone on into uh, maybe, a, maybe a life of crime. And so a lot of times, you know, with, with artists, <clears throat> they usually keep those same guys around, unfortunately. And it's, and it's, you know, because it's like, you know, you pretty much associate with the individuals who you know, the individuals who you trust, the individuals who you've been around with, been around since you were a kid. And so a lot of times when it, come, when it comes to black artists, uh, prominent artists, uh, they're still affiliated with individuals who still may uh, still live a life of crime. And if there are several individuals in, who, who are surrounding you who live that life, uh, they can, you can be guilty by association with the, with the RICO Act. Um, Young Thug had his issues early on. I mean, he, he's definitely been arrested before, but I mean, for the past... I guess, you know, since I've covered, I've covered him since, you know, 2012, 2013, his initial rise in rap. And he's pretty much, uh, pretty much kept himself clean uh, throughout his, his journey, uh, his rise in hip hop. Uh, my thing is that it seems like from what I'm reading in the app, from, from my reading of the affidavit is that a lot of it is just that they've been uh, caught up in this, 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 unfortunate circumstance where a lot of their friends and individuals who they're still affiliated with are committing crimes. And so, you know, the, the district attorney, uh, has found a way to, to basically tie all of those, those people in. And so it's the, 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 and the trial starts in January, 2023. And so it's going to be interesting to see what comes out during that trial. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to be watching it closely, and it's um, I'll be interested to see what evidence she has. But at this point, I'm pretty infuriated. Um, it's just outrageous. And Gunna, in particular, he's sitting in jail, right? He he's he can't even get bail. And, and what's he even specifically accused of? Yeah, the Gunna situation is very perplexing. I don't really understand why Gunna is still. I don't even understand. I didn't initially. I didn't understand why Gunna was. Uh, arrested in the first place. Well, from what the the district attorney is saying is that uh, that if they release him, that he may intimidate witnesses, um, which I doubt. I highly doubt that's gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, uh, but I don't think you could Im- intimidate me. Like, yeah, yeah. He's. I mean, Gunn is a is a is a is a cool kid. I, I've interviewed him several. Actually, I we actually I gave him his first cover story. I, I wrote his first cover story in uh, said 2000, maybe 2016. It was, it was years ago, but yeah, I interviewed him for his first national cover story. And he's a, he's a, he's just, you know, of course he, he comes from, a, from those communities where there's individuals who, who um, committed crimes, but Gunner's really, he's, he's a good dude. Like overall, he's a good dude. Uh, and I just, I'm just really, perplexed at why he I don't understand why he's still in jail uh while the trial is going on like you know uh you know it's it's interesting that <laughs> you know they say that you know they're using I don't know some time of evidence that you know they they think that he's gonna I don't know he's a flight risk because he has money and you know he can intimidate witnesses uh but from 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 what I'm what I'm seeing right now it doesn't seem as if 
Ghana will be convicted. I don't, I don't see how they're going to get a conviction with, with Ghana in particular. Yeah, I don't either, but taking a year out of a young man's life and artistic, you know, at the prime of his career, especially with COVID ending and he could be getting back on the road and making some money, he, he can't get this back. I mean, they're doing yeah. irreparable harm. And, you know, this reminds me of, of what happened to Stack's record in Memphis, where they made some management decisions on their own, got a little overextended on their cash, had some trouble with the distribution deal with Columbia. But fundamentally, it was banks in Memphis and the IRS that shut them down and killed what was the second biggest black owned business in the country at the time. And Memphis has still never recovered. I mean, you know, and, and so I just wonder what this DA is thinking if she's even cognizant of, of the threat she's presenting uh, you know, to one of Atlanta's biggest industries right now. It's it, it's scary. But let's go ahead and hear uh, our, th- our fourth song. This is the Migos and listen for that uh, trademark triplet flow that they cut. This is Versace. Whoa. I mean, I just love the Versace store. That was Versace, the first uh, big record for the Migos, uh, featuring their you know patented triplet flow, which has become incredibly widespread. And one one thing that that's really gotten my attention, somebody who you know I'm kind of a golden old dude, a golden age of hip hop fan who kind of checked out. For a long time i've been following it more closely since i've been doing this project and all the old school rappers trashing these young rappers and calling it mumble rap what's the deal with this because why 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 do Migos in particular kodak black's another one that gets that gets hit with this why is there such a backlash from the old heads against this style of rapping well it's interesting i have a I have a section in 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 the book uh the art of mumble rap and I kind of go, I kind of, I kind of, I don't, I don't really go as deep as I could have gone, but I, I kind of touch on it. Uh, and it's actually in the Migos chapter at the end of the Migos chapter, I call it the art of mumble rap. And uh, it's just a generational thing. I think, uh, you know, we've, every generation uh, for whatever reason, the, the generation that came before just <laughs> thinks that it's just the most horrific music ever. If you go back to the fifties, uh, you know, even early on, they thought that, you know, early rock and roll was just going to be the end of civilization. <laughs> so, and even with jazz, you know, jazz, you know, was banned in a lot of places. Uh, so there's always been this backlash against youth movements. And it's not, it's not, to me, it's not unique to me that, uh, that hip hop went through that same phase when it came to trap music and mumble rap. Uh, particularly, I think the biggest, I mean, I think the biggest thing is this, right? Um, I think when it comes to youth, I think youth, they talk to each other, right? And it's kind of like the Charlie Brown thing, right? Where Charlie Brown cartoon, yeah. the the adults are really like, you know, it's very indecipherable. It's like, it's like this <laughs> weird sound. But the only, the only language that you hear in Charlie Brown is the conversations between the kids, right? Yeah. And that's what happens with music, right? Like music, they're, artists are only talking to their peers. They're not talking to anyone who are not their peers. So it's like, 
if there's a you know an older school rapper who's like I don't understand mumble rap, well the artists probably are not talking to you. <laughs> they're talking to they're talking to the people who are in their generation, and the people in their generation understand them. So that's the you know that's the deal with when it comes to to, to music and like a backlash. And it's always going to be that way. I think even the mumble rappers now, whatever comes after that they may go back and say, oh, this is not real music. You know, so it's it's just always going to happen where, you know, that, you know, a generation, that generational divide when it comes to music, because, uh, you know, we always think that, you know, the music of our youth, uh, the music that we listened to when we were teens and, and when we were in college, we all that's always going to be the best music ever, regardless of whatever you experience after, you know, I grew up I objectively tell you public enemy is the height of human musical accomplishment. So yeah, we can, yeah. <laughs> we can that's, stop that's, there. that's just what it is. I mean, I grew up on outcast and there's nothing that's going to, I'm going to experience that's going to be equivalent to what I experienced as a youth growing up and listening to outcast. So even though I respect, you know, what's happening now, I don't, I don't downgrade them because I look at it as art and as storytelling but I'll never. There's never going to be a, a a a moment that was bigger than the Outcast run for me. So I just understand it's just a generational divide. And one last thing, topic I want to hit. Um, obviously, you know, there's a tragedy uh, Houston this week where uh, Takeoff, uh, aka Kershnick Ball, was killed in Houston. But you tell several stories of rappers we haven't heard about who or on the beginnings of very promising careers, and in particular, you tell the story of Slim Duncan, Dobie, and Bankroll Fresh. Pick one of those stories and just give a quick capsule telling the story of one of those. Yeah, I go, man, it's, you know, and so just for, for like, context, uh, in the book, I have a I have a chapter called, uh, uh, oh, man, what's the chapter called? <laughs> it's... Uh, Trapped. Oh, rap. It's called Rap's Death Trap. I'm not sure why I got a, got a brain flaw, but it's called Rap's Death Trap. And it's sorry, I had my mute button on, or I would have jumped in and helped you. I was trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's rap's, <laughs> rap's Death Trap, and it's uh, and it's and it basically goes into the numerous deaths that occur in hip hop over the past decade, and it's just it's just uh, sad, and it's you know on, on all fronts. Um, I'll take Dobie. I, I think with with Dobie, Dobie to me, Dobie is is probably is like all of them have different unique stories and and the way they uh, were introduced to rap. But to me, Dobie was like, you know, it was interesting because he comes from Alabama, right? He comes from Mobile, Alabama, and Alabama really doesn't have a hip hop scene at all. Like, you know, I can't remember the last prominent hip-hop artists to come from Alabama, right? Uh, there are a few artists now that, that are coming up uh, just more recently over the past year, but uh, before that, it was, you know, Alabama just hadn't really had a a real moment to shine. And, and, and you know, out of all the southern states, uh, you know, whether Tennessee had a moment to shine, even Mississippi had, you know, David Banner and Big Crit. Uh, you know, Florida, of course, uh, North Carolina, you know, had a movement, 
But Alabama was, you know, just we just didn't really hear much from Alabama. And Dobie was was that guy that could have really taken Alabama to a national stage and pretty much could have created an industry that's lacking there, right? Because you got to think about when it, when when a hip hop artist shines from a community, they pretty much, you know, create infrastructure in that community. You know, they they can you create jobs, you create. Uh, you know, opportunities for for local DJs, for local graphic designers, for individuals who probably wouldn't have opportunities in other cities. You you know, once an artist you know blows up nationally, it helps the entire infrastructure of a city. And so you think about someone like 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 Dobe who 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 came up in Mobile. And I'm just like, wow, man, this is this is the guy. And I and I remember just his early on thing. Of course, Dobe was signed uh, to to Ti's Grand Hustle label. And he had a unique flow and a unique style. And it was like, oh, this is the guy. Like, this is the guy that can actually put Alabama on a map, right? And, and it was just like, you know, you know, I had followed him. And I, and I remember just, you know, going to several mixtape parties with him. Grant, Grant Hustle had a mixtape where he was featured prominently on uh, multiple songs. Uh, I think it was a song called Wokim Osabi. And he, he just like, <laughs> I, he's you know, if you get a chance, definitely Google or YouTube, you know, uh, Wokim Osabi and Dobi just, his flow is just so unique. And he's just like, man, this guy is really good. Um, unfortunately, and I, and during that time, I, you know, working as a reporter, I had a colleague who was from Mobile, Alabama, and he, you know, he moved to Atlanta to, to work and to get into the industry. But, you know, he was, you know, he was just telling me just like the, how much, how, at a disadvantage he was growing up because he was like, you know, his only dream was just to get to Atlanta. This is my colleague, right? He's like, I just, you know, he was just praying to find a way to get to Atlanta because he was like, you know, if he stayed in Mobile, Alabama, like he didn't know where his life was going to go. Like he says, no opportunities there. It's just, you know, poverty, uh, no real industry. It's just nothing there, right? And so I was like, wow. And so, you know, for, unfortunately, Dobie, he goes back to celebrate, uh, goes to Mobile, Alabama to celebrate, uh, you know, his success as a, as a young artist. And, you know, unfortunately, that's jealousy. You know, that was just an individual who was jealous of his success because he was the one who made it. And I think, you know, those individuals saw like, wow, this is the guy they wanted to be. I, I really think they just wanted to be in his shoes because they knew that they couldn't get to his level. They had no way out. They were really trapped and so that's another repercussion of trap where it's like individuals who envy the success of others and you know for whatever reason for whatever traumatic issues that they haven't really been able to express you know their mental health you know uh facilities in in, in most communities uh where individuals can really express themselves and, and really understand you know the, the, and deal with the trauma they've grown up in and so they killed Dobi. And, and, you know, it's just like, you know, and it was just over something so petty. It was just jealousy of this guy made it out. And, um, you know, the guys who killed him knew that they couldn't get to his level. And it was just, you know, it was just a sad situation. Uh, we drove we drove down to Mobile. Um, I drove with my coworker to Mobile, the guy who was who was from Alabama. We, we drove down to Dobie's funeral. And just riding through that community, man, and I saw, like, I'm just like, wow, man, it's just, like, it's nothing here. Like, it's just, like, desolate. It's, like, you know, if you don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what, you know, you're literally, that's, like I say, it's literally a trap where 
there are any jobs like where are you going to work you know the local walmart like you know unless you can you know find a way you know of course you know a lot of the schools aren't really good so they're not really giving you a, a proper education uh but if you don't get that proper education and find a way to you know to get into a university or learn a trade um you know there's nothing for you to do there's nothing there's no resources for you to succeed and so uh yeah that Dobie situation really struck me hard because it was like this was the guy that could have turned the tide for Alabama and, you know with Alabama being next to Georgia it's like you know you want a city that you want you want a state like Alabama to have similar success of Atlanta because it it, it helps the economy you know, and if, you know, someone like Dobie could, could, could get on, he can go back and maybe, you know, start a record label and put some of his friends on and put some of his, you know, his you know, some of his friends to work. Uh, and maybe there's another artist that can come up after him or another DJ that can come up after him. And that's the trickle down effect of hip hop is like, you know, these this music creates industries, right? Like Atlanta is an industry. Like there's a whole there's there are people who are getting paid from the hip hop industry that don't actually rap, that don't make beats, that don't have anything to do with the music per se, but they are able to live a life based off of this industry. You know, I'm a journalist and I'm, you know, I've been a journalist for 16 years. I don't just cover hip hop, but for the most part, I've been able to have a great living just covering hip hop or, you know, being able to interview artists and things of that nature. And I have friends who are photographers who take photos of concerts and take photos of the artists and, you know, they get paid for that. And I have graphic designers, individuals who do social media. So I think when we look at hip hop, you know, don't just look at the music, just look at the infrastructure that it creates and jobs and, and uh, employment opportunities that come with uh, the success of an artist in the city. Absolutely. And my guest has been A.R. Shaw. I'm Nate Wilcox, and the book is Trap History, Atlanta Culture and the Global Impact of Trap Music. A.R., thanks so much for coming on and, and catching us up on the scene in Atlanta. Well, thanks so much for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Annie Zaleski to talk Duran Duran's Rio. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.